All right, so, you know, we were supposed to finish the book of 1 Samuel today, and then next week I'm going to start an Advent series. I'm going to do seven verses uh, that explain the whole Bible story. It'll take seven weeks. It's going to be glorious. And so what I want to do is wrap a little bow on, on 1 Samuel, but um, that didn't happen. <laughs> I made a change. We're now going to be talking about Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the reason is, if we don't understand the central section of the covenant document, Deuteronomy, which is ver- uh, chapters 27 to 30, we don't really understand what's going on in 1 Samuel. And if we don't really understand what's going on in 1 Samuel, it's much harder for us to apply Deuteronomy and, and 1 Samuel to ourselves. So Deuteronomy is going to help us understand what's going on in 1 Samuel. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of people lately who, uh, you know, the varying degrees as to whether the United States is under the curses of God, I think at this point, emphatically, we could say yes. And how I would explain that is I would start with trans fat and end with transsexuals and explain in everything in the middle. I would be very weary of anything that has the word trans in it. Needless to say, I've been working on the ideas in the sermon for a number of years now. And Tuesday, for whatever reason, it all came together in my mind, and I sat down and I wrote this. And so, the sermon is called, Eat the Fat and Drink Sweet Wine. And lo and behold, it's Thanksgiving this week, and we love Jesus. This all just worked out perfectly. So if you would like, please join me in prayer as um, we seek the Lord's favor before we open his word. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the curses and the blessings of covenant life with you. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word now, that you would give us a deep understanding um, of who and what you are and what you are doing in this world and our place in it. We thank you for your mercy and kindness. We thank you for the fat, and we thank you for sweet wine. And I pray, God, that you would teach us to eat and drink well to your glory, Lord, and that we would see what it is to be the blessed children of the Lord. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, and amen. amen. i got to check the clock here. <laughs> Make sure I don't go too long. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> now, there is little doubt at this point that we live in a cursed nation. Not a nation headed toward God's curse. This is something I've learned over the years. People have always said, hey, we better stop abortion before we find out Uh, before we find ourselves under the curses of God. And I have come to realize that abortion is the curse of God. Okay? Just like I said, trans fat is also a sign of the curse of God. America is being judged, and you can see it in what we put on our tables, our approach and attitude to sitting down to table, and what we do when we get up from table. (laughs) Our lives are about tables. It's the most central thing to, to, to our everyday life. There is always a kitchen table. When I think of how to make the Bible clear to people, I think about it in context of that, talking to you sitting at your kitchen table. Every one of you have a table. You sit there multiple times a day, <laughs> and, and your whole life is, is, surra- is um, focused upon it. And this is true of the, of the Lord Jesus. I, I love the Gospel of Luke for this reason. In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at table, going to table, or coming from table. Um, and if you go and you look at the whole Gospel, that he's like, how did he ever get all that teaching in with all the eating? <laughs> and, and they called him a drunkard, and they called him a glutton. And, and what we have to understand is why. Well, first off, why did they call him that? And why did they think it was an insult? And, and when we begin to understand that, we begin to understand this, the situation that we're living in. 
For many contemporary Christians, Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 30 is, in a sense, a dead letter. It's in that vague early portions of the scriptures that we hardly ever read, full of a bunch of stuff that doesn't apply to us anymore, right? I do, I do, I, it no longer matters if I wear two kinds of threads. I can touch pigskins, right? We're, we don't live in a mosaic structure anymore because we don't have a sacrificial system. I'm not about to slaughter anything up here, right, except our idols. And, and so we think of Deuteronomy 27 to 30 as a dead letter. It doesn't really apply to us. Our aversion to works righteousness has further muddled our brains in regard to obedience to God's word. Our notions of Jesus' fulfillment of the law leave us uncertain of what role not only Deuteronomy 28 plays, but what the, entire, the role of the entire Old Testament, right? We, aren't we now living under nothing but grace? Didn't Jesus fulfill all the law? So, right, there's just two now. Love, your, love God, love your neighbor. It's way easier, right? We don't need the 618 or 612 or whatever it is laws from the Old Testament. That's all in the past. It doesn't apply to us. Now, Deuteronomy 27 through 30 is the central section of the Mosaic Covenant. God's people must be righteous, it says, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. You must be righteous to enjoy the blessings. And we think that's a very Old Testament idea. And, there, <laughs> and then we go eat trans fat. When God's people take the oath of the covenant, they call upon God to curse them for disobeying it. Now, you know, this is very important. When I do baptisms, if you're a grown-up and you come up here and I'm baptizing you, or you're a parent and I'm baptizing your kid, listen to what I say very carefully next time, because it's like you're making marriage vows. You're calling down curses upon yourself. And if you are disobedient to the Lord Jesus, it is the church's responsibility to exile you from the community. To, to cast you away from the table of blessing, right? And when, when we stop and we think about it, it becomes very serious to us. We, we have a deeper understanding than we realized. But what we need to do is really stop and think, think, what is it that God is calling us to do? What kind of people is he calling us to be? What do tables, what do tables have to do with it? Now, just as Jesus brought a new revelation of God and a transformation of God's people, he also brought a new ethic, okay? We, we cannot never, ever forget the gospel. We can never forget Jesus in the midst of all of this. Jesus did not, however, set aside the ethical teaching of the law of Moses. He did bring, it about, he did bring about the end of the sacrificial system, the land laws, distinctly Jewish aspects of the Mosaic law, the food restrictions and dress codes, right? Hopefully, we're all going to eat a great deal of pork today. But Jesus taught the ethics of the Mosaic Law in a greater depth than even Moses. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, well, you've read that it's written, but I say to you. And then what he does is he goes point by point, taking up the laws of Moses and clarifying them and making them even more secure because he himself is saying them. Do not murder. And, I'm say- and, and he's not just saying, don't take up a knife and stab somebody. He's saying, do not even do it in your heart. Right? This idea that the Mosaic law is somehow stricter than what Jesus is calling us to do means we do not understand the law. Because you can commit adultery without ever leaving the confines of your own mind. Right? And in Moses' day, they had a system. And this is where they didn't like Jesus. Like, no, 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 we follow the letter of the law. We're a bunch of harlots, right? We know that the woman is a prostitute. We all know that she's a prostitute, and they drag her out there to Jesus. Well, how do all those guys know she's a prostitute? 
the Pharisees took the law and they used it as this external way of obeying God and being holy in their own eyes, and therefore everything's fine. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, you know, you've heard it read and you ought to do those things, but I'm talking about something even deeper than that. And we have got to get over this idea that he somehow is easier on us and what he expects of us than Moses would have been. Right? If Moses had been Sermon on the Mount, he'd been like, yeah, man, it was easier before. <laughs> what I said to you guys was easier than what he's saying to you guys. That was my Moses voice. Jesus, perfectly, uh, Jesus' perfect sinless life manifested the real meaning of God's law like no commentary ever could. He is a, right? You take the codified law and, and you put skin on it and bones in it and a heart pumping in the center of it, and that's Jesus. He's walking around. He's, he is what the law was talking about. He lives, right? And this is, think about it. It's so confusing to everyone. Everyone who had the written law, saw the written law, studied the written law, see the living written law, Jesus, and they're dumbfounded as to what they experience. And yet we think that we understand the difference between law and grace and Old Testament, New Testament, Mosaic law, Sermon on the Mount. We think we understand it perfectly. But what, why? Why do we think that? And, and perhaps is that why we like Coke Zero? Now, Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Paul follows Jesus' example. Right? He, he, he's taking the Mosaic Law, and they're bringing it forward into the New Testament, and they're clarifying it. They're not doing away with it. He fulfilled it because Jesus is the standard, but that does not mean he fulfilled it as in then you close the book and there's nothing more to be said about it. Paul and the, or Jesus and the apostles bring the Mosaic Law into the New Covenant. Jesus said, my commandment is this, love one another. Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy, it's summed up in what? Love God, love your neighbor. Paul says in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what we have to understand, if we're going to understand this, is what the theologians call the third use of the law. There are three uses of the law, okay? The law of God shows all human creatures that they are fallen. It teaches us that we are depraved. It's meant to give guidance to the state. That's another use of the law. And thirdly, to guide the regenerate into the good works that God has planned for them. When God says, go and do good works, we think, well, what is that? Well, you turn to Deuteronomy and you find out what the good works are, right? There's not some mysterious book out there written it's called good works that they forgot to include in the New Testament. God says, go and do good works. And what he means is he means go and fulfill the law like he did. And you go and you try and what happens? You fail, right? Because Jesus is not only the source of the law. He said it. He is the standard. He is the one that helps us fulfill it. When you pray in the morning, you ought to, right? We pray that his kingdom come, that his will be done. Well, what's his will? His will is written right here. He, he wants us to take the Mosaic Law, and he wants us to live it out. And the fact that we don't is why this land is cursed. The law instructs God's children in what pleases our Heavenly Father. 
Christ was speaking of this third use of the law when he said that those who become his disciples must be taught to do all that he has commanded. That obedience to his command will prove the reality of one's love for him, John 14, 15. Now listen, listen, think very carefully here. Your obeying the law is, it does not make you a Christian. It proves that you are. Right? There's no works righteousness here. I'm going to have to say it a couple of times because of what I'm going to be arguing for is going to sound like it sometimes. You don't become a Christian by obeying the law. But once you are a Christian, you demonstrate that you are by obeying the law. It's very, very, very important that we understand this. Right? And this is what James says. Oh, you have faith. Super. Good. Now, how have you been doing with the law? As the minister of the church, I'm going to say this. I understand that all of you are Christians, okay? I understand, right? You're baptized, you have faith, great. How are you doing in obeying the law? The Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation, but is under the law of Christ as a rule of life. 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's inside the law, is what he's saying. He's under the law of Christ. And what's the law of Christ? Love one another. Well, what's love? Go back in Deuteronomy, and you'll read what love is. Now, we turn to Deuteronomy, and what I'm going to now explain. You start in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, because the early part of Deuteronomy is just a retelling. It's called the second law. Um, In the beginning, Moses is explaining a lot of what's already happened. You read about it in Exodus and Numbers in Leviticus. But then in the later part of the book, he starts to get to this part where he's telling people what he wants them to do. Okay, now that we know our history, here's what we're going to do. It's like the book of Ephesians. Here's the history of what God's done for you. The second half of Ephesians is go and do like do these things. This is always how God works. He tells you the indicatives before the imperatives. He tells you the facts, and then he tells you, therefore, go and do thus. So what you have, Deuteronomy 27, is that Moses commands the people to set up a plastered stones on Mount Ebal in which they are to write all the words of the law. After the people enter the land, six of the tribes are to stand on Mount Gerizim and six on Mount Ebal. The Levites then recite a summary of the curses of the covenant. Chapter 28 outlines in detail the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Among the curses is the ultimate punishment, exile. The lengthy recitation of blessings and curses is followed by chapters Deuteronomy 29 to to 30 by Moses' reminder of all that God has done for them as an appeal to covenant faithfulness. Okay, we're going to set up these two mountains. You're going to read the curses from one mountain, half of you, and half of you are going to read the blessings from the other mountain. And then what I'm going to do is stand up and say, listen, remember who God is and obey. Because these curses are what's going to happen to you, or these blessings are going to be what happens to you. Now choose between them. He gives them this choice. He says, choose life or choose death. Choose faithfulness or or unfaithfulness. Obedience or disobedience. And every single time we make a moral decision, we are choosing curses or blessings. We're choosing obedience or disobedience. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have said before you life and death, blessing and curse, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. In obeying God, we are choosing life. 
In disobeying God, we are choosing death. This is why C.S. Lewis says, nobody, right, God does not send anyone to hell against their will. On that faithful day, when he sends those who are going to hell to hell, it will be what they chose all along. Because they were like, we'll take the curses. And the final curse, the worst curse of all, is exile. And they're exiled from God's very presence. Right? And wait, those who get the blessings, is it because they choose the... Oh, wait, well, see that little theological problem I created for myself there? No, those who get to go to heaven, those who get to all the blessings, are those who choose Jesus, who go to him and say, listen, I'm a worthless scumbag who's going to end up with, over here under all the curses unless you save me. And he's like, done. <laughs> right? You cry out to him, you knock on his door, you, cr- you call out to him, and he responds. He comes to the door, he lets you in. It's, it, it's by... The cries of mercy he's given us, the faith that he's given us, the love that he has given us, that we are responding to him. And, and so when we get the blessings, right, it's because we choose Jesus, because he is the ultimate blessing, right? What, what, <laughs> you will have eternal life, he says in John, and that is to know me, to be with me. And so when, when, when it comes down to this, curses and blessings, obedience, disobedience, you are, you are taking Jesus or you're rejecting him. And what does God the Father, or what does Jesus say of the God the Father? He says, those who accept me, accept him. Those who don't, what? They get cast out. They get curses. They get exile. Psalm 37, verse 9 through 11. For the evildoers shall be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Blessings and curses are efficacious and effectual. In Deuteronomy 28.2, it says what? All those blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of your God. In verse 15, it says, We are likewise told that in all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The curses and the blessings are efficacious. Man wants to decide for himself what he gets in the end. We want to decide for ourselves, what are the things I get because I obeyed? What are the things I get if I disobey? And we want our dis- the disobedience to lead to things that aren't that bad. And-, and we want the obedience to lead to things that we think, well, that, well, God might think are a little ridiculous, right? I've done nothing but faithfully obey you. Why do I have cancer now? I've done nothing but faithfully serve you. Why did I lose my job? I've done nothing but devote myself to you. Why do I feel this dark dark hole in my heart all the time, right? How many times have you been thinking about the blessings and curses, obedience and disobedience, and you think, what's up with this? Why is this what I'm getting, right? Did you bring us out here to kill us? Israel said when they were wandering. And and our propensity to demand of God the, the terms of the relationship is perpetual. And again, it's why we... It's why we are overrun with fake sugars. Okay? Why? Why? Because we've rejected the fat. We've rejected the sweet. We've rejected the Lord's table. We want no part of him. And so, therefore, we get no part of the good things. The meek. This is, what did Jesus say of the meek? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Efficacious means that it accomplishes what it set out to do. 
So when God curses, it overtakes us. When God blesses, it overtakes us. When you are really being blessed and you don't think it's you, you feel overtaken by it, don't you? And when the curses come and you know <laughs> that, that, you know, there they are, you feel overtaken by them. And so the land at this moment is cursed. And is anyone feeling overtaken by them? Now, you are the blessed of the Lord. Do you feel overtaken by those, by the blessings, by the goodness? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ confirmed Deuteronomy 28. He made himself known as the lawgiver and the lawkeeper. Matthew 5.17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we hear that and we think, oh, he didn't come to abolish them, he came to abolish them. Because we've turned this word fulfill into abolish. <laughs> we, 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 well, no, 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 he got rid of all that. Well, he says he didn't get rid of all that. He says he fulfilled them. Fulfilling something and abolishing something are two different things. Okay, I'm <laughs> I wish I had someone who could drive in my place and follow all the laws of the road everywhere I went, right? Now, are, is that person who's sitting in my seat, driving my car around my truck, obeying all the laws for me in my place, are they abolishing the law or fulfilling the law? They're fulfilling it. So whenever I run into situations in my life that are, that are ethical questions, I want Jesus to get in the driver's seat and be like, okay, drive me there. Drive me there and follow all the laws especially me, because I will disobey all of them. They are all mere suggestions. <laughs> all laws to me are a suggestion. It's kind of a problem. Now, in Matthew 23, it's really interesting because you find Jesus giving the woes. He says, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. So you actually have Jesus in his, in his life, in his teaching, in his ministry, saying, these are the blessed are, and then he lists them. And he says, woe to, and he lists them. He has Deuteronomy 28 on his mouth all the time. And besides the book of Psalms, the book of Deuteronomy is the one he's quoting the most. And yet, most of us don't read it. Most of us don't take the time to go find out why. Why is he quoting from that book all the time? Because he understands covenant theology. He understands that he, Jesus, is the way of life, the way of prosperity, the way of blessing, the way of the fat, the way of sweet wine. And he knows without him, you don't get those things. He is not only <laughs> the only way to have true spiritual blessing. Jesus is the only way to have true physical, material prosperity. Because I can, right? And wait, what? Yeah, we can bring in some billionaires and we can talk to them about how happy they are, right? Because what does it say? It says in Ecclesiastes that God doesn't just give riches, he gives the ability to enjoy them, right? So the only way that you can have spiritual life, the only way you can have prosperity and actually enjoy it and get anything out of it is through him and him only. As the Lord, Jesus' words are a revelation of the law, he also kept the law, despite the false accusations, and so his life is also a revelation of the law. Therefore, Jesus can declare in parable, in parable form, he declares Deuteronomy 28 in his own words. We find it in Matthew chapter 7. This is what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not uh, do them, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods come, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I set before you today life and death. My words, you can obey them or disobey them. If you obey them and you build upon them, that house will stand. If you do not, that house will fall. Okay? And we have got to sit down and figure out these categories, law and grace. Because we create dichotomies where they don't exist. We accuse Jesus of being somebody who's selling something real cheap. This free grace idea where it's like he just puts up with anything endlessly. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. Forget about it. It matters very much what you do or don't do about it, or what you do or don't do. It matters even more what you do about what you do and don't do. That's the key. Jesus doesn't say, I don't care what you do at all. He says, I care very much what you do. Now, if you do, if you obey me, super. If you don't, come to me and talk to me about it and confess it and call, call your sin by its name so that I will call you by mine. And, and, and yet we think of him, oh, no, he's not like that guy in Deuteronomy. He's not like that God of the Old Testament. And he's literally saying that if you do not follow, I'm holding up this, this is just my manuscript. He says in his word, in Matthew, if you do not build on my words, your house will fall. He sets before you life and death. A house that falls is cursed. In Deuteronomy 28, curses fall into three categories. The first are concerned with internal affairs or internal rot. The second involves foreign affairs. And the third is the threat of exile. We have witnessed all three in Samuel. We have witnessed all three in our own day. Israel begins to fall apart because of disobedience, it says in Deuteronomy 28.15. Israel is cursed in the fields and cities. They are cursed in fruitfulness in their coming and going. They are vexed by the Lord in all their dealings. He strikes them with disease. The Lord strikes them with drought. The Lord gives ignominious defeat in battle. And if you go to 1 Samuel, you see every single one of those things happen. The only thing you don't see happen is actual exile. There's figurative exile, where first the ark is exiled, and then David is exiled, because God is willing to go into exile first in order to get Israel's attention. But every single one of these curses come upon them. Hannah can't have babies. Where, right? They run out of food. What table are they eating at? They're defeated in battle. All these terrible things happen to them all throughout it, because all throughout it, Israel is flirting with the curses. They are disobeying his law. They have a king that disobeys his law, and he will not stand for it because he loves them too much. Because if they don't repent, if they don't follow, right, if he doesn't get their attention and bring them back, they are going to just continue down this path until they come to utter destruction. God promises to thwart them in the most maddening way. He says it. He, he has this whole list of things he's going to do. He said, well, you'll get married, but somebody else will ravish her. You'll, you'll slaughter the fattened pig, but somebody else will eat it, or cow. He goes through this whole list of just like super frustrating things. All this labor you're going to do, all this work you're going to do, all, right, all this thing, you're right on the doorstep of blessing, and he's going to take it all away. And the reason is found in Deuteronomy 28. Verses 45 to 47. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. 
Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you, they shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. This lack of gladness of heart and joyfulness is echoed in covenant renewals all throughout Scripture, especially the one read for us today in Nehemiah 8. Notice what they did in Nehemiah 8. Just like Moses in Deuteronomy, they gathered Israel together, they read the law, right? And, and, it, and it caused them to do what? What, did the, what was the effect on them when they were hearing the law? What, all the things they had, were supposed to be doing. They mourned and wept. And, and Nehemiah and Ezra said, no, don't do that. Obey it. You are the people of God. Go forth and obey this law. He is with you. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. Nehemiah 8.10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not about you and what you've done. It's not about the consequences that rightfully come to you because of what you've done. It's about the joy of the Lord. It's about him. It's about what he's done for you. It's about what he is doing for you. It's about what he is going to do for you. So slaughter the fattened calf. Get out the good wine, right? And sweet wine, that's, that's good wine. You get that out, and you have a joyful heart, and you dance before the Lord, and you celebrate before the Lord, because all of these laws that have been given to you that you have not obeyed, he is going to save you, right? This is the whole covenant language, right? We're... As we're going here, as the prophets come, they start telling them, listen, guys, you've got to repent of all the things you were doing. Stop doing it, but don't despair. Rejoice, for the Lord will save you. Now, again, I, I like... <laughs> I, want to, I want to make sure that we're following here, tracking that this is not just some Old Testament idea. In Galatians 3.10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the apostles talk this way. They talk this way. If you do not obey the law of God, you will be cursed. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he eats the fat and drinks sweet wine. He is always full of gratitude and thanksgiving. He's showing us the way, right? You, you look at what you've done, you call it by its name, you see the sin, you call it by its name, and God will call you by his name. So go and eat and drink and be merry. Now, in our day, the evidence of God's curse on the land is not only seen in sexual perversion and rejection of gender roles or in father failure, which is rampant, but the fact that we have rejected cream and honey, the cream and honey of heaven, for nonfat almond milk and Splenda. I have never been more convinced that God is not with us when I drink almond milk. I'm like, like, now, hold on, hold on. I have kids who can't drink milk. This is why it exists in my house. So one half of my mouth, I'm like, thank goodness, they have something called milk. But then I drink it, and I think this is what people would prefer. People would prefer this. Like, I've been on my uncle's farm where they have to, they, 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 they get the jug out, and they have to, like, stir it. And you're like what is that? Are we, is this whipping cream that you're giving me here? And then they pour it in a glass and you drink it and you're like, there's nothing, this is, why would anyone choose almond milk over this? <laughs> I taste some of these things sometimes. I'm like, the Lord has departed. I was, I, I, I've been a lifelong um, diet soda drinker and recently 
I, I was. I was drinking Coke Zero, and I thought, this can't be what the Lord meant by blessing. And I went, and I was like, you know what's actually good is this water stuff. The fact that we have rejected God is seen in our rejection of fat things and sweet things. We have so much food in this country that we burn it as ethanol. We substitute the real corn and wheat of our ancestors for bleached and modified garbage, just as we substitute the lies of porn for real God-sanctifying, sanctioned marital intimacy. Right? Fake sex on the Internet, fake food in the shelves. These two things are not a coincidence. We are obsessed with things that are fake. We don't want the real blessings of God. We don't know what the real blessings of God are as a people. And so we're substitute this, substitute that, substitute, substitute, substitute. We don't know, right? And I'm saying we, modern Americans, we don't know the joy of the marriage bed. So we take what's fake. We don't know the joy of the sweet wine and the fat. And so we take fake things. We are a people who have abandoned the goodness of the Lord because we've abandoned the Lord. And our perversion runs deep. I mean, they're talking about virtual reality now. This is the thing, right? This is the, the, it's not enough that, that they want the kids to sit there with the Xbox like little zombies. Now they want them to put these things on their head and go in these rooms that are designed like the thing in the video game because God forbid you actually run around outside, right, and play airsoft maybe in the woods. Now we're going to run around in a warehouse wearing this thing on our face and pretend like we're running around in the woods. And you're like, How? like this, we're not talking about entertainment now. We're talking about people who have utterly lost their minds. Okay? <laughs> and, and this is now a question. This is a question. If a guy, this is an ethical question that I've had a pastor talk about. If a man has a sex doll, has he committed adultery? You're like, have you... Where do I start? Where do I start? The curse isn't coming. It's here. It's here. <laughs> Go down and see what they call cheese at Wendy's. It's, I love it because my kids are, have never really had fake cheese, and they reject it utterly. Um, they don't even think it's really food. Um, bless my wife. She actually t- has taught them on some level what real cheese is. But, like, I grew up with it. And, and w- without it, it doesn't even taste like a cheeseburger. Then you go someplace where they put like a fried egg and like blue cheese on it. And you're like, what is this? This is amazing. What? I've been doing hamburgers wrong my whole life. <laughs> and, and sometimes when you eat real food, right? When you go to somebody's house and the corn isn't yellow, it's like all these different colors because it's clearly not the kind that they mass produce and sell at QFC. And you eat it and you're like, this doesn't, this actually tastes like, it's kind of hard to describe, like bread almost. We, we, right? We, we make everything taste like Snickers bars because we think Snickers bars is the thing that's going to satisfy us, right? Nothing satisfies you like a Snickers bar, right? And what ails you is you need a Snickers bar. Like, and, we, and we watch those commercials and we think, there's nothing wrong with this, right? It's like that meme where the, the squirrel's sitting in the building that's burning down. He says, this is fine, right? All around us is the cursings of God. And, and we laugh at them, and we think they're funny. And we watch the commercials that, uh, uh, during the football game. We're like, oh, that's silly. Like, no, a Snickers bar does not satisfy. Have you eaten one? 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And it's true. We have rejected the law of God, we have rejected God, and therefore we've rejected his blessings. And his blessings are real. His blessings are practical. His blessings are material as well as spiritual. Now, it doesn't matter if people agree. Okay, this is very important for us in the fight that we're in now. It does not matter if people believe that Deuteronomy is the word of God. Their rejecting it, right, does not depend upon their believing it to be true. The Bible does not contain the revelation of God for believers only, but for all men everywhere. Theologian John Frame puts it this way, God himself necessarily acts as law to all beings other than himself. To be Lord is to be the giver and ultimate enforcer of ultimate law. This is why the apostles were so desperate for us to go tell people about it, because obeying it really matters. Everyone who stands in judgment of God's law stands in judgment of God himself. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, because the glory of God is the standard. He said, do you want glory like what I have? Here, do act like this, do these things, live this way, and you will have the glory of God. So when he talks about the fact that we don't live up to the glory of God, he's talking about the law, but he's also talking about the person himself. We've rejected the law, so we've rejected the person. Romans 1, 21 to 25, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And, and this, is the, this is what happens to people who reject him, whether they believe in him or not. He turns them over. He turns them over to perversity. He turns them over to false everything, right? <laughs> Netflix and nonfat milk. I'm not kidding, people. The two things are connected, right? I don't know what that is in a nonfat milk carton, but it's not milk, okay? And I don't know what that is on Netflix, but it's not entertainment. And, and we're sitting there absorbing these things, thinking everything's fine, everything's fine, everything is fine. But man, I hate Democrats, <laughs> right? As if, as if it's left-right politics, right? When, <laughs> and then we'll eat like, crinkle chips that we bought at the gas station that are packed with trans fat. Like, it would be better for you just to eat butter. (laughs) And it tastes way better. Curses fall upon the land, the physical land, that rejects God. This causation is covenantal. Now, to bring this home just a little closer to home, our nation was founded by men who obeyed and assumed the law of Moses. John Winthrop, the founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, appealed to God's commandments, ordinances, and laws as the philosophical and moral foundation of our early social experiment. Such a society was to be biblically centered. Of this, there is no question. No other choice was possible to Winthrop, who wrote this. Therefore, let us choose life that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him, for he he is our life, and prosperity, and he quotes then from Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20. Now, John Winthrop is an, an intellectual fountainhead of who we are as the American people, our, our, our civics. And he based the whole thing on the law of Moses. Now, this isn't, right, sometimes we wax eloquent about the founders as if, you know, this golden age, but this is not something that's ancient history in this country. The Supreme Court chambers, if you go there, there's actually this man wearing a robe with these two tablets. 
Now, if you go there now and you take the tour, they're like, yes, this is a representative of the ancient law. You're like, ancient law? What do you mean ancient law? The guy's got two tablets. It says one through five and six through ten. Like, what is, who is that? And they're like, oh, it's just a guy with the ancient law. And you're like, could you explain a little more? And you're like, well, you know, when they built this building, that's Moses. That's Moses. When people come in here, I love this when I'm in Washington. This has happened to me a couple of times. Like, I, I can tell you don't know, but that's Moses. Okay? And the guy who painted it wanted it to be Moses. And he wanted, when the judges are sitting in these chambers making decisions, they, they want everyone to see Moses and the Ten Commandments up there for a reason. In 1892, in the case of Holy Trinity Church versus the United States, this is just one of a gazillion examples, the court made a survey of previous decisions, and Justice Brewer famously concluded that the United States is a Christian nation. Therefore, we have become an apostate Christian nation. Okay, all of us were not dropped here, right, like the 82nd Airborne, living amongst just this, these tribes that have never heard these things. This land was a Christian nation. It's now an apostate Christian nation. In the early 20th century, we saw the ascendancy of feminism accompanied by prohibition, and I don't think that's an accident. This is not a coincidence. Men rejected their responsibility, women rejected their God-given roles, and Congress rejected alcohol. And you could see the curses, right, doubling and doubling and doubling. Men were too weak and drunk to retain God's blessing, either in the home or with alcohol. And God was like, you know what, we're going to raise these women up now to shame these men. To not only, right, they're not just fighting for things that they ought to be fighting for, because we could discuss whether they should be voting or not. They're going to now fight for all kinds of things that aren't really their purview, right? And how is it gone? Now they have to compete against men, right? Well, who are, say they're women. How is feminism going? But the fact that feminism and, pro, and, and their first thing that they got going with was prohibition, again, demonstrates a little something about the way the blessings and curses work. The Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 allowed Darwinism into government school curriculums, and this was a coup for those who wanted to take the, um, God out of the system, turning it into a status institution of indoctrination. How is that going for them? Right? They're like, no, 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 no. We're just going to allow it as one of the curriculum options so that people at least can hear it and they know how to deal with it. You're like, okay, now, and they, all the way the sliding scale is they've ab- abandoned creationism in it entirely. In 1977, the low-fat diet was recommended to all Americans, and obesity, the obesity epidemic started the same year. <laughs> I'm not making these facts up. I actually kept note, notations. If anybody wants the sermon when I'm done, I'll give it to you. The war on poverty and drugs uh, perpetrated by a government who allows Big Pharma to run a billion-dollar industry on a business plan of addiction. Right? Over here, we're going to have the FDA running one of the greatest drug cartels of all time, while over here, we're going to go and fight drug cartels. And if you don't know the history of Oxycontin, you should, because the business plan was addiction, and it worked brilliantly. In 1981, it was the year that I, cannot believe, or I can't believe it's not butter was introduced to the United States, and it was also the year the AIDS epidemic started. What's the connection? Is there a God in heaven who's just doing all of these things randomly? Now, (laughs) it's not a coincidence either that exactly 100 years before that, 
The natural use, right, the natural use is when they discovered sugar substitutes. 1877, they discovered sugar substitutes. A hundred years later, we're, we're, we're eating things called, I can't believe it's not butter, and men are having sex with men and, ha- and, and causing an epidemic of AIDS. Now, are all of those things connected? Is there a God in heaven who, are, who is orchestrating these things or not? Or, or is it just a coincidence? I, I, am I that guy now, right? If you go over to my office, there's a bunch of pic- pictures and dates and things on the wall, and I've got the red string chain smoking <laughs> since the greatest generation threw down fascism the american dream superseded the gospel of christ as american greatness became our obsession democracy became the gospel of western global fascists yes it's true and we've seen our forces now come to a draw in korea lose in vietnam lose in mogadishu and come to nothing in afghanistan is that an accident we became the fascists because we're going to spread democracy now with F-16s and Abrams tanks. And I remember, this is what it was all about in the 90s. Yeah, my family is going with the army overseas so we can spread democracy. Nobody ever talked about spreading the gospel. And when the two towers collapsed, more collapsed than just buildings. Our standing in the world as any kind of moral authority, any kind of prowess ended. And then we go on for a 20-year war in Afghanistan that ends in catastrophe. Now, and this is another one that... Let's talk about abortion for a moment. Where does that idea come from? Where does this idea where women need to, in order to protect their quality of life, have to murder their children, sacrifice their children? Well, your life for mine. The indigenous people of North and South America is where it came from. And if you don't know, it's not just the Incas and the Mayans in South America. It's the Pawnee Indians. It's tribes that live in North America, have ritualistic annual things. They find pits now where there's 140 dead babies there. Because they, in order to protect their quality of life, because they were worried about a hard winter, or they were worried about their crops, or they were worried about a volcano, what they would do is sacrifice their children. And now what we have are women who are trying to protect their quality of life by doing what? Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 31. When the Lord your God cuts off people before the nation, when, when the Lord your God cuts off before you, the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Without the protection of God, the principalities and powers of the air who exist in, in North America are, are going to work on us. There is, there is a spiritual war involved in this, and we, we displaced people who, eat, who used to eat people and sacrifice people. Well, in the West, we'd put an end to all of that. And now, because we've rejected God, here it is coming back again, and their gods and, their, and the spirits that led them are prevailing over people in the United States even right now. And, and, I, don't, and I'm, I don't care how quacky it sounds. When you displace people and you don't displace their gods and and you reject God and God rejects you, what ends up happening is those spirits and those gods continue to have an influence over the people living in those lands. 
And if you don't believe me, go back and read the Old Testament a couple of more times. And for good measure, read Mark, the Gospel of Mark, because what you find there, you find where Jesus goes into these lands where it's Gentiles, and what you find are the spirits and the gods that they had worshipped are still there. And we think it's an accident. What were they worshipping here 150 years ago? Right here. Right here in Linwood, Washington, on this hill, in these woods, what were they worshipping? And is it any wonder that because we've rejected gods, those spirits are now at work on, on us and in us? Now, the book of Samuel, the book of Samuel begins with Eli's son stealing God's fatted portions of meat. What we experience is people rejecting the fat as a sign of our prevalent perversity as an atheistic Marxist culture. They stole God's portion. God's portion was the fat. What you see in our culture is we reject it. We don't want to eat at God's table. That's God's portion. We don't want anything to do with God. We don't want anything to do with fatty foods. The book of 1 Samuel ends with Saul at the table of demons, feasting with a ghost wife as a last supper of sorts, a Passover meal, before he goes out and is utterly destroyed. Feasting as the Titanic sinks, right? You need, to, you need to get your strength up, buddy, so you can go out there and be destroyed. Counterfeit meals, stolen meals, idolatry, a moral bankruptcy resulting in abusing food amid murder, military defeat, and civil unrest. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And amid all of this, you have David. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 1 Samuel 30, 11 to 12. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Throughout Samuel, the land of Israel is under the curse of God, while true Israel, David, is hunted into exile. A middle of this is a table of strength, a table of restorative mercy, a table of plenty, a table of fat and sweet things. And that hope that David gives is what the authors of the Deuteronomistic history want us to receive. Not everyone in a cursed land is cursed. We have got to understand the state of our land, and it's cursed. But that does not mean that everyone in the cursed land is themselves cursed, right? Here's, here's Saul and his cursed household running Israel, and here's David and his blessed household, and one is big and one is small, one's in control, one's not. But in the midst of this turmoil and chaos, you have a table of fellowship, of mercy and goodness, of fat things and sweet things. Now, in his final address, Moses foresaw that the people would not remain true to God, that the curses of the covenant, including exile, would ultimately fall upon them. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2 through 3, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your, your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This structure immediately raises the question, well, how, are, how do they know if they turn to the God and he restores them that they're not going to just do it again? Because it gets to that point, by the time you get to the end of the, the Old Testament, you're like, how many more times are we going to put up with this cycle here? The cycle is clear. God keeps bringing them back, and they keep running off, and he keeps cursing them, and then he, he sends them away, and then he brings them back again. You're like, how long is this going to go on for? 
The answer is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Now that sounds like a New Testament sort of thing to say. He's not going to circumcise your body. He's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your children. In Deuteronomy 10.16, God commands them, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. He commands them to do it. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he tells them he will do it. He will do the thing that he's commanded them to do. The answer to the problem of Israel's stubborn infidelity ultimately rests in God himself. God will enable his people ultimately to do what they cannot do in their own strength, to obey him out of the conviction and devotion of their own hearts. That's why Jesus comes and he's talking about hearts. He comes for the hearts. He comes and fulfills the thing that Moses promised he would do, and that is circumcising our hearts so that we would have a heart for God, no matter what we did, no matter what we do, that we would not be kept from him because we love him. This is why Jeremiah says, listen, guys, I know, I know this cycle just keeps, but here's what Jeremiah has to say in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took it, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is telling Israel in Deuteronomy that she cannot in her own strength obey the very law that he has given her. Because of her stubbornness, her self-confidence, however, this is something that she will have to learn the hard way. How are you doing learning it? How are you doing? Right? There's a boatload of things you ought to be doing and you're not. And there is a lot that you're doing that you shouldn't. And, and, and I can say circumcise your hearts and circumcise your hearts and circumcise your hearts and circumcise your hearts until my arms fall off. And nothing is going to save you. Nothing is going to rescue you. Nothing is going to make you capable of circumcising your hearts unless you turn to Christ. He will come, and he will circumcise your hearts. And as we see in the covenant renewal system, every time you go out there and you fail, you come back here and you cry out to him again, and what does he do? He saves you again. And he'll go on saving you, and go on saving you, and go on saving you, until that day where you stand before him, and he says, it's not that you chose the blessing, it's that I chose you. I chose you, and therefore you are here. That is the hope that Moses gives them at the end of Deuteronomy. Though our nation is under increasing degrees of cursing and abandonment by the God it has abandoned, we sit at a table of the victorious Lord. We sit here because he came and he died for all the sins that we ever committed. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits at the head of a table full of fat and sweet things. And the world could go to to pot. The world can go to chaos. The world that rejected him, he's dealing with it by, by rejecting them by rejecting prosperity and goodness in the land, by making them eat trans fat and making them sleep with transsexuals. He is, his curses are upon the land as it ought to. But in the midst of those enemies, in the midst of all that cursing, there is a table of blessing. Are you hungry for it? Do you want it? 
And if you are here, then you do. And if you are here, it's not because you are smarter. It's not because you're wiser. It's not because you're holier than everyone else. But you, who didn't want him, he wants you. He loves you. And so he brought you to his table and said, here, come and eat fat and, and drink sweet wine and sit down with me forever. And we think, us? Really? Us? Me? Why me? And because he loves us, because he loves us first, we love him. And because we love him, we want to obey him. And we want to say, hey, guys, guys, world, listen, listen, you're under the curse of God. Right? It's not about who you vote for, necessarily. It's not about, any, it's not about an economic system. It's not about going out there and guilty verdicts or not guilty verdicts. God is working all of those things out. What it's about is where is your heart? Right? You are under the curse of God. And I can show you because your lunch is a Snickers bar and a Coke Zero. Right? And I can, I can start there and work my way to higher and more, more grotesque things. We are supposed to be compelled by the love of God to love this world the way he loves it. And does he want it to remain under a curse? Now, I want to be careful here because in all of this, people, I say eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Now, is the whole Christian life then about eating and drinking? No, Paul says it's not. So we have got to remember this. Right? It, Deuteronomy does, in fact, say go out and spend your money on the best things that you can afford. Right? We come here, and what is it? I mean, really. It, it's pretty decent bread. It's okay. It's a Hawaiian roll, I suppose. I know. I know. It's white bread. I'm glad that there's not cheese, if this is the quality. Anyway. Right? We get this little thimble of wine. And, and is that what matters? Or is what matters who's sitting at the table? is what matters is the attitude in which we approach it, the attitude in which we get up from it and go into the world and do what God has called us to do. What he wants from us is to be a people of feasting and rejoicing, a people full of thanksgiving, a people who know the love of God, the blessing of God, who pursue him, not for the swag, not for all the stuff he can do for us, but but because we love him. So when you sit down at the table, what, what matters is that he is here. What matters is that we are with him. What matters is the attitude in which we celebrate this feast. Okay? Now, knowing that, you go from here, and what should your table be like? What should your household be like? That kitchen table, you can think of it right now. Right? How many chairs does it have? What color is it? What shade of brown? Is it wood? Is it plastic? Is it glass? Is it in the dining room? Is it in the kitchen? Is it in a nook? That table, what's... The, What's the spirit at which you sit down at that table? What's the nature of your feasting there? When you get up from there, what is it that you go and do? We have got to repent. We have got to turn from all the trans that the world is offering us. We have got to eat the fat, and we have got to drink the sweet wine because the Lord sits at our table with us. We must repent. It's not just a mere... Repentance, though, of sexual perversion or gender bend, complementarianism and egalitarianism. It's not even mere repentance for the lack of faith. We need a repentance that brings us back to true worship, those gatherings that we have taken for granted and forsaken as a people. 
It's a turning from false worship to true worship, defined as that which is accompanied by true celebratory feasting in the presence of the Lord. What did Nehemiah say? He said, stop with the crying. Stop with the tears. Stop. Now, Jesus said, go weep with those who weep. Right? There are things going on in your lives. You ought to go and weep. But there comes a point, right, where you stop and you rise. And with joy in your heart, you come to the table and you feast with the Lord. Right? We cannot be a people of tears all the time. Right? But we cannot also be a people who never cry. What, what, the whole thing, right? we don't know how much government is good for us. We don't know how much f- real fat is good for us. We don't know how much wine is really good for us. The whole thing that we're dealing with in the world is the fact that we're confused about how much is good enough. We have got to repent some of us of our gluttony and our drunkenness, some of us for the meager, pathetic, sad tables that we keep. And in doing this, in turning to him, we are turning to the Lord of feasting, the Lord of celebration. The Lord's table is presented to you. He invites you to it. And it is supposed to, just like his love compels you to love, his table compels you to keep table a certain way. And if we want the curses to end, how we go to table, what we put on it, and what we get up from there to go do, the attitude throughout matters. And, and, and if we can't plant his flag there, lift his banner over, over that, we have got a lot of problems. Right? His curses <laughs> work from high things to low things. And what we've got to do is we've got to start repenting from the lowest to the highest. Be faithful in the little things and work your way up. Right? Repent of your attitude towards your, your spouse, your children. Repent of, uh, in your attitude about food. Repent in your attitude about loving this, this nation which is cursed. Are you happy it's cursed? Does it, have, has it caused you any real tears at all? Then what you need to do is get up, go to the table, sit down at it, raise your glass, raise your voices, and praise the Lord. And, and in that, you will find the blessing of the Lord, not just spiritually, but physically. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your covenant curses and blessings. We thank you, Lord, that you instruct us in the way to live. We know, Lord, that that our Lord Jesus Christ was a um, faithful son, that he rejoiced to do good, that he rejoiced uh, to love and to keep table well. I pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would pray for the world, that we would pray for the leaders of this nation, that we would um, cry out to you, Lord, in very specific ways for the curses that this land is under, and that we, as your blessed people, would rejoice in all things in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, and amen.